Friends, welcome back to another episode of the Midwest Monsters Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I'm joined by Professor Wagstaff, Venomous Vinny. Good to be with you again, friends, as we revisit a format that it wasn't that long ago that we uh, covered. Um, this is our true crime series, but hopefully you skipped the last one because it was <laughs> it such a disturbing rough. case. Yeah, it's rough. Uh, Sylvia Likens. And so today we're, we're bringing you one that's. Um, I won't say it's any more lighthearted, uh, but no, it's a little but it, more. It, it's it's not, a, a little more palatable. It's a little more detached from. A bit uh, more brief. Yes. It, uh, stretched yeah. out torture. Yeah. So today we are talking about Charles Whitman and the University of Texas Tower Massacre. Creator shootout. of the Whitman Sampler. <laughs> not true. His chocolates <laughs> are great. Um, and then uh, at least one film uh, based on that, which is called Targets. And so, as usual, um, well, I guess before we let the professor jump in, you guys were obviously familiar with this case. Yes, barely. Really? Like in the periphery? Not, okay. not really. Okay. Um, I'm sure you've been to the tower. Yes. Yeah. Not up in it, but yeah, I've been there. Is the first thing I did when I got to UT for a conference. Is I was like, oh. It's like, where's the tower? Oh, there it is. Okay, let me go over there and get a good look at I this thing. I ain't never been to Texas. It's hot. I can tell you that. Austin, Austin is a good time. I'll stay right here. And it's uh, that hot. Uh, you don't have to go to Austin anymore to get Torchy's Tacos. You can find those true. in Fisher's, which is nice. <laughs> Can't recommend Torchy's enough. I used to go to Chewy's every time I was in Austin, also up here. Yeah. Actually, Austin. let's just talk about food. Yeah, let's talk about food <laughs> in Texas. Um, so, yeah, so I... I mean, I, I knew it well enough that that was the first thing I wanted to see when I got there. Um, just and and it was summertime, so not a lot of students on campus. So it was, I got to have a, like a nice somber moment there to to sure. kind of remember what happened. Yeah, I um, which we I can get into a little bit later. I, mine was interesting uh, there. Some of the experiences, both in the moment and after the fact, which I'll get more into later. But uh, I think uh, one of the more interesting elements of this case too is how time has started to wash it away a little bit which is why i think it's it's still an important case to cover and because it has a interesting movie to me uh, to discuss also but uh, there's just been so much more of this that's what i was gonna say i think that's why and i just want to get that out of the way right up front yep the, it it almost now while it was such a crazy thing to happen at the time it's almost blasé now yeah. with how the frequency in america this happens sure this was um national news um i mean and, I, and it always is but right it, but this was more like stop what you're doing excuse me like what yeah it's nuts yeah it wasn't like there had never been any mass shootings before but not a lot right like not to the level of of notoriety that this one was yeah and um plus the environment it's i mean it almost feels movie like yeah with, with getting up into that space but uh and i had asked um my dad just kind of for frame of reference for somebody who was alive at the time and he pointed out that like you know, like the Manson murders, for instance, they were a big deal, but not immediately. Those were a bigger deal when they caught them in right. this part of the country. But like this was news pretty quickly. And uh, Richard Speck and the murder of the nurses in Chicago yeah. uh, were also relatively close uh, time-wise to this. And so it's like it kind of starts to mark a shifting um, in terms of kind of this macabre violence that's becoming more prevalent in America. Right. And I don't know if that runs parallel with current events. Or not. But I, I did want to point out early on for the episode, because I know it's what everybody thinks when you hear mass shooting. It's, this is blended into a much bigger topic now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Should we just jump right in? Sure. Uh, so this case, basically, as we referenced, it, it took place at the University of Texas. Um, there's a tower there at the center of campus. 
um, where an act of mass murder was carried out by Charles Whitman on August 1st, 1966. Uh, while most of this uh, tragic and violent story is limited to roughly an hour and a half um, on this campus, there's also a lot more that leads up to it and trying to understand who this is, why they did it. Um, so our, our murderer here is Charles Joseph Whitman, who was born on June 24th, 1941 in Lake Worth, Florida, uh, the eldest of three sons. Um, he was raised by a notably abusive, uh, father who always expected perfection from him. Um, at the same time, Whitman, and maybe some of this was brought out of him by the expectations of perfection, but, um, he was described as an extremely intelligent child, Mm -hmm. um, had an examination at the age of six, uh, with an uh, IQ to be 139. He was reportedly the youngest ever uh, individual to earn the Eagle Scout rank um, by his 12th birthday. So, I mean, he was already getting people's attention um, with some of his worth at a young age. In June of 1959, to celebrate his graduation and upcoming 18th birthday, he and friends uh, got drunk, and upon returning home, his father became enraged uh, at him being intoxicated and severely beat him, threw him into the family pool, which resulted in rebellion, and uh, landed uh, Charles in the uh, with the Marines, uh, deployed to Guantanamo Bay within a matter of weeks. Um, which he had did to escape his father. Yep. And so he, he basically bounced out of there because it had just been, you know, lifelong misery um, living under the oppression of that. And I, I always like to clarify, as I know other podcasts do, this is not an excuse. No. Like, uh, it's just kind of painting a picture of some of the elements that lead to the making of a person. Anytime, I mean, this just comes up with friends and family that anytime we're even talking about someone we know doing some, uh, participating in bad behavior, we go, hey, listen, I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just trying to explain maybe how we got here. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's a lot. And I think we, this, especially this story, we've talked about another true crime stuff, but like, especially this story, as we start to point to different things to say, maybe this is what caused it. Da, 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 da. That's not to excuse the behavior. It's to try to understand mm-hmm. and explain maybe why. Right. Especially too, in a case that's <clears throat> about a snap, uh, situation. Yes. This isn't long drawn out enjoyment of the misery of others. This is, you know, kind of derailment yeah. in the ultimate and, form. And being aware of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so two years later, he enrolls uh, at the University of Texan, Texas in September 1961, where he studied mechanical engineering. He had a scholarship um, approved and funded by the Naval Enlisted Science Education Program. Uh, his time there was pretty standard uh, with his classmates remembering him as uh, you know, a friendly, promising student, jokester. Um However, there was glimpses of a dark side to him even then. Um, He, at one point, um, stood in a dormitory room and pointed to the tower. And you always kind of wonder if some of these stories are apocryphal or not after the fact. But according to this, uh, the the person that was with him said that his quote was, a person could stand off an army from the top of it before they got to him. So, you know, make of that what you will. Yeah. Um, He got married in August of 62, Eventually, his scholarship was revoked due to poor performance, and he was ordered back to active duty. He had some troubles there, but eventually was honorably discharged in 64, returned to Austin, and eventually his college career full-time in 66. Uh, In March of 66, his parents are divorced due to abusive behavior, and upon learning this, he drove overnight to get his mom moved and brought her to Texas with him, uh, which would prove unfortunate for her in the long run. Um, Can I pause you there real quick? Yes, of course. Sure. So, a few things just... I listened to a lot of podcasts on this because I didn't have time to read on it. And um, it's interesting that even when he tried to get away from his dad and go to the Marines, his dad tried to call in a bunch of favors with people he knew in the military mm-hmm. or even just tried to, to kind of talk the Marines into letting him go. And they were to like, find a way to keep his finger on yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Trying to keep him under control. And the, and <laughs> what one podcaster put it, they're like, do you think that the Marines in the 60s are going to let go of a bright, smart, handsome, strong young man who is the youngest Eagle Scout in this country's history, dream on, buddy. You can't, right. you can't bully everybody into getting your own way. So true. Um, and then, two, the reason he got the, the scholarship to go to UT Austin was um, he was going to be an officer. Like, he was doing that well in the Marines at that time that they wanted to send him away because you couldn't be an officer at that time without uh, having a, a college diploma. And so, or college degree. 
And it's then he he does pretty well when he gets there. He's kind of a model student, but then after he gets married, he really has this hard time in he feels like he needs to be the perfect husband. And so he focuses more on doting on his wife, walking her to and from class that his grades begin to slip. So it's like, and then when he goes back to the Marines, he's a bad Marine because he's so focused on being away from his wife. And it's just like this guy started up here and then just steadily declined because again, not to excuse, but to maybe explain that, Perhaps just the way that his dad would have made him feel this imposter syndrome or would make him feel this this need to be perfect and in order to pursue one thing to be perfect, other things were falling apart. Just some interesting psychology. When you also get fatigued from pressure. Um, yes. Whether you've had a job with high expectations, if you were raised in a, a household like this that, that expects those things, it wears on you. Yeah. And uh, at some point, and I've been through it to a certain degree, where I, I had some some pretty high levels of responsibility, even in my mid twenties crush me yeah. after so many years. I mean, it's, you know, it wears on you. Um, and so I think that's part of what he was. He was trying to be too many things yeah. and it got to the point where he wasn't doing any of them very well because of that. Right. Um, on one occasion, a couple months after his parents divorced, he sought professional help, uh, from a campus psychiatrist, uh, within that session, he had, uh, disclosed that he had endured increasingly, Frequent headaches, his sense of self-loathing loathing over the fact that he had struck his wife twice throughout the course of their marriage already, his resultant fear of becoming a frequent woman beater in the mold of his father, and frustration regarding uh, his father's almost daily phone calls to him pleading with him to persuade his mother to return to Florida. So, I mean, he's basically just being driven nuts with some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's there's some interesting elements of that interaction, um, but I, to the best of my knowledge, that's it. I don't think it ever went anywhere further than that. Any other other thoughts leading up to this from you, Vinny? No, not so far. Okay. It, my interest starts to come in later. Actually, way after. But yeah. Gotcha. Um, so he he really is. I mean, they're describing him. Uh, the doctor is as oozing with hostility um, throughout the uh, hour long session, um, and he also disclosed his developing fantasies of shooting random people from the observation deck of the UT Tower. So I mean, this wasn't like a random impromptu version of, of something leading up to it. He's actually fantasizing about it. That's good. That's another point I wanted to raise earlier too. And he's a great shot. Yeah. He, yes, that is true. Yes. He's um, being raised. He's a better shot than his brothers, but at first he didn't like hunting because he didn't like killing animals. And that was a really sore disappointment for his dad. And when he realized how much it disappointed his dad, he kind of pushed through it. And then once he got to the Marines, um, he didn't get a perfect score on his shooting test, but he did earn the rank of sharpshooter. So he was a good shot. And wasn't there some, I can't remember, was it in college where he got in trouble for dressing a deer in the dorm yeah, bathrooms? Yeah, they killed a deer. I think Talk it was like about a, a flip of, of stance on that. Yeah, killed a deer and then brought it into the dorms and tried to clean it in the shower. Got in a little bit of trouble for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, we arrived basically now at where things start to really go south. On July 31st, 1966, uh, Whitman sat at his typewriter and began composing the first of his two suicide notes, in which he outlined his intentions to murder his wife and mother prior to committing his act of mass murder at the University of Texas. He was interrupted by friends who visited for a bit before they had to leave to pick up his wife from work. Um, others reported him as being in almost a relieved state, but also making odd, unfinished statements, like referring to, it's a shame that my wife's going to work all day you know, and then not finish. Um, and so, uh, that evening, Charles did bring his wife home from her part-time job as a switchboard operator. And she immediately went to bed shortly after midnight. Uh, Charles drove to his mother's apartment where he stabbed her to death, left her body in bed with uh, sheets covering her. He returned home and around 3 AM, he stabbed his wife to death in the heart. He left suicide notes at both crime scenes. And while most, most of it was illegible, the purpose beyond his plans was to clarify that he loved the, his mother and wife and killed them to spare them the suffering and embarrassment of his actions that were uh, to lay ahead. Thoughts on that uh, initially? I can't remember. Did he bludgeon or stab his mom? Um, I I thought he stabbed both. I can't remember. One with a bayonet, yeah. maybe. And that's the thing, too, is that because I didn't like read some of the facts podcasts were reporting different things as I was listening to yeah. them. Like one would say, Oh yeah, he bludgeoned. Oh no, no he stabbed Which her. that may have been part of it, but I think the kill was, was yeah. stabbing. Yeah. What, what a death to give to the two people that you care most about. Right. Uh, you're, you're an excellent shot, 
But then again, that probably would have alerted others to what had transpired, and he wouldn't have had a chance to go fulfill his fantasy or whatever. The only two people he cared about in this world. And he gave him a rough-ass death. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's nuts. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that is the, true, though. It's horrible. Right. Um, it's just a bummer, man. <laughs> and so... You know, he mentions that his mom had just lived a terrible existence. And, you know, kind of in a way, like, not only was he sparing her of embarrassment, like, he was kind of helping her on, you know? Like, you've had to put up with so much from his dad, and it's like, Thanks for the generosity, Dick. Yeah, Yeah, I don't think you get to choose that for her, bud. Um, Yeah, he didn't want them to live with the shame of what he was about to do. Yeah. So, was that just the first letter? Yeah, he left one at each. Yeah. Yeah, Okay, and then, so, yeah, and then he also talks about that he knew something was fucked up in his brain. That's yeah. the part that interests me. And, I mean, you get a little bit of that with Dahmer, where Dahmer knew something wasn't right. Uh, but this guy... I've always compared these two in that regard. There's, like, this kind of There is a remorse element. there that you don't get from, yeah. like, the Gacy's and the Bundy's and the Manson's and all these other other famous high-profile uh, mass murderers, serial killers, whatever, whichever one applies more aptly. Uh is that he and Dahmer both are the only two that I've run across that had remorse for what they had and done knew and early on. knew go knew while it was happening that man I'm fucked up for this. This is not right. Yes. Yeah. Which uh which pro football player knew that he had the CTE so bad that his suicide note said you need to junior sale junior sale oh. I couldn't yeah that's who I thought it was yeah yeah he was like guys my brain is fucked up and I can't live in this world please study my brain after I'm gone yeah yeah. Uh, Thankfully, uh, no one listened to him. They're still struggling their way through it, but it has gotten, they have gotten better. Yeah. I'm starting to look at it. Well, and thankfully, Junior Sale didn't take anyone else with him. Yeah. Very true. <laughs> um, so, a lot of this stuff I'm going to try and just condense because sure. it gets really tedious uh, going over everything this nerd We could make our own out. movie talking yeah. about it. Yeah. So, later that morning, Whitman rented a hand truck, wrote bad checks, and purchased weapons and ammunition from various stores around Austin. I returned home to his garage where he sawed off the button barrel of a shotgun he had just purchased. I don't know anything about that process. Robert, if there's anything you want to add to that. It's highly illegal. So, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> But how did you do yours? Yes. Can I put my clothes back on? Nice. This is very uncomfortable. Nice try, Fed boy. <laughs> um, so he added these new items to his already owned arsenal and packed all of it into his marine footlocker that he had retained. Along with his weapons, he also packed assorted cans of food, coffee, vitamins, medications, earplugs, three and a half gallons of water, matches, lighter fluid, rope, binoculars, a machete, three knives, transistor radio, toilet paper, a razor, and a bottle of deodorant. It's a lot of shit to haul up to the top of a tower. Um, well, don't be in there a while. Yeah. Shortly before driving to the campus, Whitman... Can we just stop for a second at deodorant? That's a weird thing to take on your last, your last stand. He thought he was going to be up there days. Yeah. But who else is going to smell you? Like, why <laughs> are you taking deodorant? This is a man who was I get beat it. into discipline by his father. I suppose. He was in the Marine but Corps. But that sticks out as the weirdest thing to me, this whole thing, is you took deodorant with you. Side note. Hygiene of, perfection, brother. Speaking of Marine Corps, I love how many podcasts I listen to when they said he signed up for the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm like... Oh boy. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, just a disciplined lifestyle, Vinny. Just a disciplined lifestyle. Okay. <laughs> it's spam too. I'm concerned about the toilet paper. Ah, that's a real concern. Yeah. Flinging it like a monkey. Um, so shortly before driving to the campus, Whitman also donned blue nylon khaki coveralls over his shirt and jeans in an effort to appear as a janitor, repairman, or delivery man, and thus deflect any suspicion upon his arrival at the campus. At approximately 11.25, he reached the University of Texas at Austin, where he displayed false research assistant identification to a guard in order to obtain a 40-minute parking permit with the explanation he was delivering teaching equipment to a professor. Whitman then wheeled his equipment toward the main building of the university. He is believed to have entered the tower between 11.30 and 11.35 and may have timed his entrance to the tower to coincide with the 11.45 changeover for students in order to maximize the number of available targets walking around the campus. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go super detailed on all this, but I wanted to point out how he gets up there. Yeah. Because yes. I, without looking into this case, that's always my first thought. Like, 
how does this guy end up on top of this tower with all of this shit? And that's how. It's kind of like that that joke that people make about just walking anywhere with a ladder. Nobody will stop you. Oh, yeah. They just assume you're there for a purpose. And it's kind of the same here. He dressed the part, wheeled shit in. I learned that lesson when I got to meet Larry Bird when I was with uh, Eric's brother-in-law. Oh, yeah. Uh, We were at that Pacers game. I love Larry Bird, obviously. And he was like, you want his autograph? I was like, really? He was like, yeah, just follow my lead. He used to work there. And he said, just act like you know what you're doing and follow me. Enough people still know me. And we straight up walked all the way down to the main level. And I walked right up to Larry Bird and handed him my ticket for him to sign. <laughs> a little bit of confidence gets you a long and way. did he dunk on you? Yes. <laughs> and talk shit in your face? <laughs> <clears throat> Upon entering the main building. <laughs> I bet y'all didn't think we were talking about Larry Bird tonight. I just keep thinking about that picture where they talked about him being the ultimate trash talker of all time. <laughs> yeah. The bangs. Um <laughs> So, upon entering the main building, Whitman found the elevator did not work. An employee named Vera Palmer, believing Whitman was a repairman, informed him the elevator had been turned off before reaching for a switch to activate it for him. He smiled and thanked Palmer, stating, Thank you, ma'am, before repeatedly saying, You don't know how happy that makes me. How happy that makes me. Said it twice. Creepy. It's like, never mind. Turn that son of a bitch off. Think of this poor lady the next day. You know, she's probably like, Oh, honey, here, let me fix the elevator for you. Yeah, she's on the news screaming. I didn't know. I didn't know shit. Yeah, I'm just kidding. She was not on the new screen. I did not do this. Um, He exited the elevator on the 27th floor, (laughs) then hauled the dolly and equipment up a final flight of stairs to a hallway, then down a corridor toward the observation deck. Y'all ain't got to worry about me. I ain't got the strength or stamina (laughs) to haul that shit up one flight of stairs. I'm taking a slingshot. (laughs) They make the point that if she hadn't turned the elevator on for him, he probably would have called it quits that day. Which is why I wanted to do this podcast. It is Vera's fault. <laughs> this I'm is an anti Vera podcast. Yes. <laughs> um, Hope her grandkids listen. <laughs> well, uh, inside the reception area, Whitman encountered a 51 year old receptionist, Edna Townsley. He bludgeoned Townsley into unconsciousness with his rifle butt, splitting her skull before dragging her body behind oh, a couch. Lord. As Whitman hid Townsley's body, he was surprised by a young Texan couple named Donald and Cheryl, who entered the room from the observation deck as he leaned over the couch. Uh, later stated she and Walden believed Whitman holding a firearm in each hand was about to shoot pigeons. She smiled and greeted Whitman, who smiled back and said, Hi, how are you? Both observed a dark stain on the carpet close to where Townsley had been seated, which Botts assumed was varnish. So talk about just kind of uh, telling your brain this and that. Explain it all away. Yeah. Yep. That's what we do. Yep. Uh, moments after they had exited the 28th floor, Whitman constructed a makeshift barricade to the floor entrance, using Townsley's desk, two chairs, and a wastebasket. As he was about to enter the observation deck, he was surprised by a vacationing Texarkana family attempting to navigate the barricade. As 16-year-old Mark Gabor, I think that's how you say it, attempted to pry open the entrance, um, Whitman wheeled and fired at the family with his shotgun, killing Mark and his 56-year-old aunt, and seriously wounding a 19-year-old Michael and his 41-year-old mother, Mary, before resealing his makeshift barricade. Michael, 48, and William Lamport, who had been following their families to the reception area, were uninjured. Both briefly ran from the stairwell before attempting to provide care for their family members, then running for help. Uh, Again, after securing the makeshift barricade, Whitman fatally shot the receptionist once in the head before wheeling his footlocker to the six-foot-wide observation deck where he wedged the dolly against the sole entrance of the door before at approximately 11.46 a.m. donning a white headband and unpacking his weapons from the footlocker where he placed all around four sides of the deck. So I really wanted to paint a picture on how he got there and got this secured. Cause that always used to confuse me when I was younger and knew about yeah. this. I'm like, how does this go on that long? Right. That's how. Yes. Can I add a little levity to the situation? Sure. When I picture this whole thing of him getting to the observation deck, it doesn't, it doesn't happen for me until he puts on that headband. And then all of a sudden I hear in the soundtrack, everybody's working for the weekend. Like when we <laughs> joked about smashing Eric's TV. Yeah. What you do if you looked over? I was just crying. <laughs> um, okay, uh, Vinny, any thoughts on the setup there? Pretty chilling. No, I agree with you though, because a lot of that when I was because I watched the movie first before I ever got into it, and I gave a, a little bit of a reading into the case. I was like, how do you go up there for an hour and a half before somebody tries to come up there and, and pop you? And right. then obviously this does lay it out as to why it wasn't that simple. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, at 11.48 a.m., Whitman began shooting from the observation deck 231 feet above the ground. His targets were random individuals between the ages of 17 and 64 upon and around campus, although the majority were young students, including an 18-year-old woman who was eight months pregnant and whose unborn child was fatally shot. Several, several of those killed or injured were shot on or near a section uh, known as the drag which is home to coffee shops, bookstores, other locations. Um, Guadalupe. Yep, which I've got a story about that, which I'll share once we get through this. Um, it was popular with the students, located at, uh, to the west of the main building. Numerous others were shot from the other three sides of the deck. In the first 15 minutes after Whitman f- uh, first fired from the tower, he shot the majority of his victims in this quick span of time. Yeah. Then it turned into... Uh, you know, a tense standoff, and I mean, there was still more carnage to come from there. But the initial burst of the the terrifying bloodshed is just this yeah. fifteen minute window of just insanity. Um, initially, people mistook the sounds as nearby construction. Uh, others mistook bodies falling as Vietnam protests on campus, which I found fascinating. Where people just thought they'd look out the window and see kids dropping, and thought they're at it. Yeah. When in reality, it was actually human Got beings. Like early flash mob type stuff. Yeah. Um, as the shootings continued, several police officers and civilians provided suppressive fire from the ground with firearms of varying calibers, um, forcing Whitman to remain low and predominantly fire through the three large storm drains located at the foot of each of the four uh, feet high observation walls. Where he continued to find targets, uh, he also hit, um, including a 29 year old electrical repairman, Roy Del Schmidt, who was fatally shot 500 yards from the tower, a uh, 30 year old funeral home director, Morris. Holman, who was shot and seriously wounded seconds after entering Whitman's view from behind the cover of the ambulance in which he had been traveling to ferry wounded individuals to local hospitals. Uh, Just carnage in all directions. Um, This went on uh, for the better, uh, you know, an hour. Um, Something that isn't really clarified, honestly, in much of the stuff that you read online uh, or in really the movies, but the documentary Tower, which I'm sure we'll at least hit on, uh, really spells out the misery for these victims laying out um, the, the pregnant moment that was referenced. She's, she's shot immediately when this begins, and she's out on 100-degree concrete in August in Texas and can't move. Um, for there's an a half. harrowing story of another woman coming out and laying with her. <laughs> I think I'll get it out here. But when I told that story to Carrie the other night, I couldn't I couldn't tell her the story without getting choked up. The documentary is incredible, oh, and yeah. it really yeah. showcased <clears throat> that particular story. Out, I mean, there's a plenty of great stories in it, but that one especially. So, one thing I want to make sure we hit on for this that I most people don't know with this this yeah, case. There's there there's so many helpless people in this story, but there's also so many heroes. Yeah, and that woman that laid with the pregnant lady was a hero. Uh, yeah. And, and it's incredible. The other part that was amazing to me as I watched the documentary, not to get off on that too far, but <clears throat> that the victim only ever saw her one other time. She came to the yep. hospital and gave her a painting she had done and then just never had contact with her ever again. Wow. Yep. That's wild to me. Yeah. Because if that were me, and and the lady even said that before she had seen her at the hospital, even at that point she said, I thought maybe she was an angel you know or was it was it the guy who carried her she said that about because they just no how do you not have contact after i don't know that, that aspect of the story was wild to me the, the true clarification of selflessness there is no story yes. she seeks from it she literally yes. wanted to help a human and i can't think of something more horrible to put yourself in oh, yeah. i mean you are literally laying down in front of a killer on a hundred degree concrete not in, only that your your lover, you know, is dead laying next to you. Sure. And you know that the baby you've just carried for eight months is dead inside of you. Sure. Well, I'm and I'm talking more about the volunteer to come out there yeah. and do that. Yeah. Like, I mean, that's like you can't really put into words. It's it's twofold. Even yeah. if there's no shooter, yeah, that's terribly painful. Oh yeah, to go out yeah. there and do that, but yeah. to go actively <clears throat> do that where there is a shooter doing that. See, so, yeah, I, I this. That documentary is so moving. I actually got my father to watch it, and um, those women are now in his book. Oh, he, wow. he researched and wrote bios on it and got them in there for, nice. for kind of their story. Um, and I just want to point out, too, he'll, uh, hopefully he listens and hears this. He refused to attach it to Whitman, 
So mm-hmm. he's got, nice. I think, the incident, but he didn't want their existence laying underneath him. His name. Yeah, I didn't get to rewatch that because I couldn't find it anywhere. I watched it when it came out, but yeah, just on YouTube for free. Oh, okay. But I watched it this morning. Yeah, it and it takes me back to that true crime episode we did on the the onion field, and the two cops and the one cop reaches over and touches the other cop's hand before mm-hmm. they get shot. It's just a moment of humanity. Yeah, it's it's powerful stuff. Um, so before we get to the end of of this event, one other thing I want to mention. Um, that I think is very unique to this, but frequently overlooked, is the uh, police chartering a two-seater aircraft to go up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, this shit's. I mean, it's literally like a movie. Yeah, it, and so that's the that's the ties into the bigger point. That's kind of a wrap-up thing. Is just like he wasn't lying. You could hold off an army from up there. Yeah, it's so far away that no small arms fire is going to hit it. No one with you know he's, you're not going to get enough of a look at him from the ground. Yeah, to, you, I mean you're you're from the ground you're going to see inches of his body. Yeah, you know like and if you, you watch Tower, there's they intersplice actual footage of him firing from up there. You can see the billowing smoke. You can't get to him. No, you can't he's got holes the in the yeah. It's, and this is before and the cause for. So there was no SWAT teams. No back SWAT then. teams. No. And after this is why we have that. But back then there were no specialty <clears throat> departments to do things like this. And they said most of the weapons that the police had weren't high caliber enough to even reach him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There just was no. It was just. It, and that's why this is set apart, as you said from the beginning, Professor. Is that this? We hear about it all the time now, but back then this was unthinkable. Situations yeah. like this were unthinkable. Like no, there was no police contingency plan, right, for something like this happening. So the police chartered a two-seater uh, aircraft, and they had a sharpshooter, Marion Lee, who attempted to get a clear shot of Whitman as the aircraft orbited close to the tower. I mean, this is like King Kong. They're up there <laughs> yes. circling this tower, trying to pick this guy off. Um, however, with the rising heat waves, it was creating turbulence and it was limiting the stability of the aircraft. And they just eventually had to move on from the idea. Uh, Whitman fired two shots into the aircraft before pilot Jim uh, Boutwell navigated to a safe distance from which he continued to circle. Uh, but they kept trying to distract him uh, and eventually just had to get out of there. Yeah. Um, so now we get to the end. Um, Austin police were involved within minutes of the first firings of this event. And one of the first officers to arrive was 23-year-old Austin patrolman Billy Speed, who took refuge with a colleague uh, behind a column stone wall. Whitman shot through a six-inch space between the columns of the wall and killed Speed with a single shot to the chest. I just want to make sure I mention that officer yeah. who, who was taken down immediately um, from trying to help from this. As the events unfolded, a group would assemble to ascend the tower. Uh, civilian Alan Crum, who was 40, a retired Air Force tail gunner who was nearby and jumped into helping. Officer Ramiro Martinez, who was off-duty at home when he heard news of the reports of the ongoing shooting at midday. Uh, Department of Public Safety Agent William Cowan. Austin Police Officer Jerry uh, Day. And then um, we have Jack Rodman and Leslie Gilbert. And they kind of all converged on each other. There was like a group of four and I think a group of two uh, that eventually kind of met up there. They encountered the distraught uh, family members that we discussed earlier that he had attacked on inside the building. What's up? You left one out. Who? Houston McCoy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Maybe I had doubled up on uh, Officer Jerry Day there on my bullets. Um, but they uh, <clears throat> they encountered the family up there. They actually had the one uh, father, Frantic, trying to wrestle uh, his way into to helping. And oh, yeah. They had to get him out of there. Um, so I, I appreciate your enthusiasm, buddy, but you're a liability at this <laughs> point. Uh Oh yes, and as we mentioned, uh, McCoy, uh, they had separate. He and Day had separately reached the observation deck shortly uh, before they immediately followed Martinez to Crumb's left. And arriving at the observation deck shortly after, they proceeded uh, trying to work their way around the sides there. Believing he heard sniper's footsteps proceeding toward the corner of the observation deck, he covered. Crumb fired a single shot from his rifle into the southwest, directing Whitman away from his line of fire. And I should point out, too, I skipped over it. They, they basically just got this wedged open and just quietly started going out different yeah. directions of there. Um, not knowing if there's only one guy. Yeah. Right. Like, let's, let's, let's yeah, not overstate that. Yeah. yeah. They have no idea what they're walking into. Yep. That's a good point. Um, some scary shit, too, especially when you listen to him recount the experience uh, in Tower, where they break down exactly how yeah. they're doing yeah. this. 
Um, at, a pro- at approximately 1.24 p.m., while Whitman is crouched close to the northwestern wall of the observation deck with his firearm focused toward the southwest corner of the deck for the source of the rifle shot that had just been fired, Martinez and McCoy rounded the northeastern corner. Martinez jumped from cover and immediately fired in Whitman's direction, missing with most or all of his revolver shots. Um, almost simultaneously, McCoy leaped over uh, from cover as Martinez rapidly fired in his general direction, aiming at Whitman's white headband and hitting him between the eyes with several pellets, killing him almost instantly. McCoy fired his shotgun a second time, hitting Whitman on his left side. Whitman fell to the ground. Martinez then grabbed McCoy's shotgun, ran to Whitman's prone body, and fired a direct shotgun blast into Whitman's left arm at point-blank range. As civilians and police were initially unaware the sniper had been taken down, those upon the ground continued firing in Texas style at the tower, uh, narrowly missing Martinez. McCoy instructed another officer to notify dispatch to, uh, to announce to Austin uh, media outlets that the sniper had been killed. As these instructions were relayed, Alan Crum waved a white handkerchief from above to signal that the sniper siege from the tower was over. Any thoughts on that before the kind of post-event? I just picture that's how I die. Yeah, the white flag. <laughs> Heroic act. <laughs> I got him. <laughs> oh, there he is! Yep. <laughs> so you die like Ben from My yes, Living Dead. Exactly. <laughs> um, I just want to say there's a neat bit of dialogue through folklore, and they, they say it happened, but um, before the ship pops off, before they go through the door, uh, Alan Crum looks at Martinez and he says, are we playing for keeps? He says, you damn right we are. And he says, well, you better deputize me. Oh, Martinez yeah. is like, what the fuck? I thought you were a cop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, and they, got, they got that in the Deadly Tower, the Kurt Russell one. Yeah. That's in there. Yeah. He says, well, consider yourself deputized. They said afterwards they, uh, the police department offered him one day's pay for as a deputy for, for the and he, Yeah. He turned it down. Yep. Wouldn't take it. Um, yeah. I also, it's interesting because... Some podcasts, when they heard that Martinez like fired... Now, again, this is before SWAT teams. This is also before cops were carrying semi-automatic handguns. You know what I mean? That would come many years later. Do I have 38? Yeah. Is that what he's carrying? He's got five or six shots, yep. you know? And and people are like, man, how do you botch it that bad? You pop out and you miss with all five or it's six like shots? Fiction. <laughs> and it's like, or he's just trying to distract him enough because he knows McCoy's got the... You know the scatter gun, right? Yeah. When you really got all good. those people doing that, just getting shots going at him. Yeah, it yeah. still helps. You just got to pin him down a little <laughs> well, bit. Well, yeah, I was going to say. Not only that, if you're getting shot at five, <clears throat> six times, you're probably not aiming at anybody in response. Yeah. Well, and I don't know if you guys know much about the TV movie, the Kurt Russell one from the seventies. I watched Mar- it last night. Martinez sued him over that. Really? Um, I think it was him because he it depicted him cowardly, and and another officer too, um, where they got in lawsuits with that. And I think he's kind of unfairly, it's been fixated on. So I think it's it's nice that we're clarifying, like, what he did mattered. It helped. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I don't, as I, I mean, I was just kind of. He was one of how many watching. people who got up there and walked up on that motherfucker. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that I that's mean, balls. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I feel like they combined, like, I don't think Houston McCoy was in the movie, in the, the Kurt Russell movie. Yeah. So because Martinez pops him like five or six shots and so i can't remember i don't know yeah one of the officers i can't remember which one sued him yeah. i don't think it was it might not have that's been that's why in movies like monster they change the names of some of the players yeah. yeah right to avoid shit like this yeah but yeah i know that there's been some real anguish for some of those officers over the years sure uh, that were it because this was such a foreign event yeah that the, there was more shame to be attached. I mean, now we wouldn't bat an eye if, if you know, out of how many officers didn't kill the shooter. Well, Who about, cares? How Thanks about for cops trying. Won't even go into a school where kids are being murdered. Well, there's also that. Yeah. Right. Um. But yeah, it's um. It's a hell of an ending. <laughs> it's a hell of an ending. It is. Um. Do we got anything else before I just go into kind of some of the post event? Nope, stuff. I don't. Vinny. They uh, got his possessions and revealed identification guards. Uh, by 3 p.m., his identity had been formally established. His name was broadcast nationwide. Whitman's father, upon hearing news reports of his son's ID, contacted the Austin police and provided both his son's address and that of his former wife. Shortly thereafter, police discovered the bodies of both women and the suicide notes from Whitman that he had left uh, close to both of their bodies. At Whitman's home, investigators also discovered a collection of written uh Admonitions he had apparently read on a daily basis stored inside an envelope on the outside. Whitman had penned a final message, 8166. I never could quite make it. 
These thoughts are too much for me. His uh, body underwent an autopsy at the Cook Funeral Home, which he had requested um, prior to all of this happening, saying that he hoped that they could examine and see what was wrong with him because he knew something wrong. And interestingly enough. Yep, his autopsy revealed a small, fairly well-outlined tumor in the white matter. Uh, I'm not even going to go into all those terms, but they they found a a small tumor. Uh, Experts disagree upon whether this tumor contributed to the homicidal rage and despair, which drove him to commit this massacre, but... They also they don't rule it out or attribute it. That's yeah. the wrinkle for me. That's yeah. the wrinkle that and I think that that's gives why me some not... interest and some pause. And it's deplorable what he did. Yeah, certainly. there's no excuse for it. We're explaining, not excusing. Yeah, but if you were to conclusively say that where this tumor was placed could have had what you know could have had an influence on that certainly it's not I think, that guy's fault i think but the, there's nothing conclusive so fuck him <laughs> i think the uncertainty of it is why his name is not more well known i think that it's softened i like by that having the, that potential he was not immediately vilified in the same way that even as i mean like the same guys from his era are are still regarded as monsters and this guy is dri- he drifted off quickly he's not even zeitgeist. mentioned in tower right which like, I, I, documentary, do, they, I do love. They do not even it's say his name. all about helpers and yeah. victims, and yeah. they keep yeah. him out of there. Um, and not to keep going back to that documentary, but the one part that was interesting to me, too, was the guy who carried the, helped carry the pregnant woman away. Yeah. Saw her again 50 years later, and had carried guilt all these years that he didn't go help her sooner. She survived. Yeah, yeah, and I I should clarify too the reason because we always try and go for dramatizations uh, with this, but so we don't go for direct documentaries. But this is one of the best documentaries I've ever watched. Oh yeah, not even true crime, just period. It's that fantastic. And for those of you listening, if you haven't seen it, it's it's primarily an animated documentary. Mm-hmm. So they're they're recreating the day, but using the voices and overviews of the people who were there. Yeah, they blend like this animation that Linklater does with like Waking Life. It's like this kind of unique thing. Maybe from Austin. I don't know if it's the same people, but it blends in that with Talking Heads of present day and real footage. I mean, it's it's incredible. It's like uh, if you ever watched Tales from the Tour Bus, the more recent yeah. show on Very similar. Showtime. Yeah. Um, just lastly, his body was interred alongside his mother at Hillcrest Memorial Park in West Palm Beach um, in Florida on August 5th. So right there with her. Um, and then we've we've mentioned kind of the stuff in the media here. Ironically enough, and it just occurred to me, he was worried about his mother carrying that shame after what he did. But who ended up left to carry the shame of what he did? His, his dad. dad. Yeah. Which I never, really never just, thought about that. That really just occurred to me. Yeah, which is a huge part potentially in what drove all of this. How can I yeah. disgrace this guy? Never thought about that. It's an interesting element of it. Um, I want to make sure I point out before we jump into talking about uh, the movie is my experience down on the drag. Um, I had the first time when I went down there. You Real got your quick, finger up. One last okay. thing I want to say. Uh, man, what about the news anchor? Oh, I just thought it right as he was the, talking. And thought we were the, as they were listing the names of the victims, heard his grandson. Yeah, and he said, "Wait, go yeah, back. Go, oh, back. Go, go back." I, God. I and in the documentary, the guy that had to recount it weeping. Oh, it's brutal. And not only was it his grandson, it was his namesake. Ugh. So he hears his own name read. Like, did you just accidentally write my name? And it's like, go back. I think that yeah. you said my grandson, and, he, and, and it was that his kind grandson. Of that shock where he's like, go, 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 go back, go back. I, I think I just heard. It's brutal. When I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I remembered that, but I forgot it. And when I was listening to one of the podcasts, I go, oh god damn it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sorry, yeah, but I no. One of my first visits to Austin because it was like um, in the late two thousands. I went there a lot. Yeah. Uh, because I had different friends that went down there and did internships, and I loved it there. I actually was considering moving there for a stretch. I Austin's a blast. Well, I had a new camera at the time. I was down on campus, just walking around taking pictures. And at one point, I laid down um, by a fountain there to get a shot of campus and the tower. I'm not thinking about the events. Yeah, I, it, it had been years since I thought of this. This is not a case. The movies related to it are not something I had watched every year or thought about. So, I mean, it had been easily 10 years since I thought about Charles Whitman. I didn't realize I'm taking pictures of where this happened. And then 
people are looking at me weird. And it didn't occur to me until I got back home. I, I look like I was in bad taste. I'm like a grief tourist. Because I'm actually, where I was, is what I referenced earlier, I'm on the stretch over there on the drag where he got people. Like where he actually hit people. I was laying down and taking pictures. But I was doing it because there was a fountain and the tower behind it. I just thought it looked cool. So I was like crouching down. And at one point I actually laid on my back to take the picture. And then it, it kind of dawned on me later. I, and it may, may not have even been why I was there. Maybe when I was home. But my dad pointed out. He goes, oh, yeah, that's the tower Whitman shot from. Oh, I feel really bad. So any any, any strangers that walk by, I was I was not doing the tacky well, thing Well, actually, there. Vinny and I have prepared this statement about how we're going to kick you off the show because of that. You've been Son canceled. Of, yeah, oh, canceled. you could have told me before I read all that. Um, we didn't want to write it all down. <laughs> and I also want to note for listeners at home, when we say Guadalupe, that's how they pronounce it down there. Yeah. Like, I know it's Guadalupe. I have the Virgin Mary of Guadalupe tattooed on my arm. <laughs> we know the word is Guadalupe, but it's just a local colloquialism that they call it Guadalupe. Yep. It, it really is. Yeah. But yeah, I, that's something that I connect, connected, you know, after the fact. And, it's, and I didn't realize until this research that I specifically was where. Yeah where he had found that opening over there on that stretch. Just kind of wild that I, because the minute I read that, I went, I remember laying there. Holy shit. <laughs> Just kind of crazy. Okay. Wah, wah, wee, wah. That, okay. is the, that is the case. All right. Let's get to fiction. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Targets. You got any dates and details, Professor? Uh, yeah. Targets is a 1968 release. It was directed by Peter Bogdanovich. as his debut as a director, starring Tim O'Kelly, Boris Karloff, and Bogdanovich himself. Um, no, has this... Well, how do you say it? Boris Karloff been in anything else <laughs> of note? Talk about Orlock? Well, yeah, when I saw him on the screen, I was like, huh, this guy could be good in some other films. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think... And I didn't mispronounce that. You heard it right. This came out in 1968. So not even two years blew my mind uh, after this event happened. Now it's important to point out this is very loosely inspired by, but there are some pretty spot on elements. There of it. are yeah. some very spot on. That's elements. that's the other part I want to say is like don't get it twisted when we say loosely inspired by. There's a lot of stuff that has nothing to do with the real case, but there's a lot of it that is exactly yeah. what's oh, yeah. going on. So pretty ballsy, uh, especially at the end when in the credits it says. The disclaimer of these events are purely fictional, and if you know any similarities, like well, purely yeah. fictional, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to tell you <clears throat> when I started this movie, and there was a castle movie playing with Boris Karloff, I was like, I think Professor made, gave me a copy of the wrong movie. Same, I was like, this is the terror, not the tower. <laughs> I was like, I think he, I think he fucked up, and I was honestly getting ready to text. I love that. So that answers my next question. Neither of you had seen this before. No, no, no I've no, seen no. the terror, and I, <laughs> and I think only you had ever told me about it. Yeah, yeah. This was, um, this was one that I, I graduated into growing up over the years. Like, I, it wasn't something I could watch early on, um, but it. it it scared the hell out of me it's because wild. it's um it's was it an, just the DJ's haircut that scared you? It's solely that. <laughs> um, it's an interesting marriage of of what used to scare and what was scaring yes. them, which we can go obviously more into. Um, but this was a very intense movie for me from from a younger age seeing it because I was fascinated with getting more and more modern because I started off with. Um, vintage horror, which was much more kid-friendly to kind of grow into. And, sure. And so as we kind of moved up through the years, I would get excited as it got closer and closer to being brand new. Uh, so Targets was a big deal to me at the time because it, it had color. Karloff and it was newer. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then the violence was, was pretty intense. Yeah. So yeah, uh, initial thoughts? Um, it was interesting. It was just, it was it was really a wild ride to take and not knowing what I was getting into. I didn't know how close to the actual events it was going to be. And so it was fun to be like, ah, it didn't happen that way, but wait, it's not trying to tell that story exactly. So it was this internal conflict within myself to enjoy the movie for what it is 
and like not try to be like, well, that's not what Whitman. Oh wait, it's not Charles Whitman's story. It's just loosely based on that. Yeah. For me, it's that I am very familiar with Karloff's work when he was Karloff and black and white and in makeup and usually playing a heavy. Uh, I so I have not been exposed a whole lot to. Boris Karloff as an actor, as an, an everyday human being. Sure. So it was very interesting for me to watch Boris Karloff play that type of a role, just because I'm not that familiar with it. So that that was, and and again, uh, the Corman terror movie being spliced in with it too uh, created confusion in the beginning. Yeah. And then I was like, that's kind of clever that they used. This stuff, you know, that that they have. He's playing an actor who played these roles, and they're using actual film from the roles he's played. Because they even use one. Uh, what's the movie? The black and white movie that they show the footage of, where uh, he's, Criminal Code. Yeah, yeah, where he's sitting there watching that, and his living room. I was like, "That's this is clever to use his own actual work for this mm-hmm. actor." Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was smart. Yeah, it's um, and that's why I was excited to to cover this movie, not because it's the best. De- you know, covering of this case, mm-hmm. but it's such a unique document. Um, and there's so many interesting other elements of it. If you're interested in, in more of the film history side of it, um, with Bogdanovich and this being his first movie and how production came to be with Corman and his style and what they did with this. It's, it's just interesting in a lot of different directions, but I do want to clarify that, um, this is not your usual type of true crime movie. Yeah. No, not at all. And, and, what is nice about this movie, and that I appreciated about this movie, is that juxtaposition of that old gothic horror becoming passe, and the real world horrors that were starting to emerge yep. in, in in reality with the type of crimes that were being committed by people. So there was that, like that passing of the baton style of thing. Uh, there's the story of an aging actor who's ready to hang it up. Uh, it was it was a unique choice to make it the convergence of these two people. Yes. Yeah. And then, as a bonus for me, you throw in the drive-in. Which I watched in solidarity the night that I didn't join you guys at the drive-in. <laughs> yeah. I did throw on at home. So it hits for me on a lot of yeah. different angles. So I'm, I'm glad that you uh, picked it and provided it. Awesome. Um, so basically the, the whole crux of this movie is uh, two narratives that are going to converge. You don't know that necessarily the way it's being laid out for you. But um, as you mentioned, we've got Karloff uh, playing Byron Orlock, an iconic horror film actor who... Um, is disillusioned by real-life violence, contemplating retirement, working his way through the twilight of his career, which, by the way, it's a shame that this just wasn't Karloff's last role. It would have been an awesome send-off oh, yeah. for him. Uh, but it's still in my mind, I think of it as kind Especially of Especially that one scene one. where he's telling the story, and they use one camera shot and one take mm-hmm. for the entire oration Sure. Of what he does for that scene, and I'm glad you mentioned that too because, and that's fantastic. Yes, the if you've ever wondered, like if you watch older movies and they're more stagey, this is a perfect example of how how these actors are so good that they're just a product of how movies were being made when they were being made. Because you can look at Karloff in this, and he's just like one of the young contemporaries. I mean, he's natural and on screen. His delivery go. with that story as they slowly pan in, in and around him also tells you why families still watch How the Grinch Stole Christmas every year with Karloff as the narrator because of that style at that voice and just the way he's able to, to, to narrate yeah and so you're dealing uh, with the aging actor but you also have Bobby Thompson a seemingly ordinary and wholesome young man Uh, who is getting weirder and weirder with each frame um, as he uh, will end up going into his own uh, path of carnage. Um, Just a little bit more background on the movie. This was produced by Roger Corman and written by Polly Platt, along with Peter Bogdanovich. Um, Obviously, it was loosely inspired by Whitman. Um, This was shot in 1967. So for context, you can think just in the time that 
they're making this movie by the time they're coming out with it. There's already more assassinations yeah. of, of beloved figures. Um, <clears throat> the Vietnam War is raging on. So you already have the world validating the point without them even knowing that's going to happen. Yeah. It literally is already <clears throat> painting out what's happening. And then it's just backed up and reinforced because um, Paramount had to make some tough decisions on releasing this. With in the wake of the assassination and kind of what was in good and bad taste and how they wanted to approach that. Um, but the executives chose to market the film as a commentary on gun violence mm. um, and tried to kind of bring it in that way. Thank God the message got out loud and clear <laughs> and changes were made. Everything's um, got better. And, yeah. and uh, as mentioned, Polly Platt uh, was an important part of making these movies with Bogdanovich. All of his best movies are his first chunks of them when he was with her. And there's been a lot of spotlight on her in recent years with podcasts and whatnot, but she's a big part of why this movie's good, too. Um, do we want to kind of go into more of either of these characters and their path in the movie? Um, you just kind of get... Yeah, I don't know that we have to go beat for beat. I sure. mean, it's just kind of... It's kind of cut and dry. I mean, he... I think this is an excellent depiction of, quote, not Whitman, leading up to it. I think that this, from... What I read, watching this portrayal of this character in this movie, reads the way that I gather. I got a lot more Whitman from this character than I did from Kurt Russell in the TV movie. And that's why I picked this. Yeah. That's, it's interesting because the Deadly Tower is way more close to accuracy for, for the events. Yeah. But, I mean, this just feels like the chaos. Absolutely. It's like Richie Cunningham. Yeah, yeah. Losing his mind yep. and flipping. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, it was interesting to watch the two films. I wasn't sure that I'd get to watch Deadly Tower, but I did last night. And I am glad you picked this one because I think it, it portrays Whitman's character much better. Good, I agree. And I think it's a more interesting movie. It is. Um, it is. Deadly Tower was fine. Sure. Um, but if we're talking about made-for-TV true crime, we've got ten other films better. Of other question. other cases, obviously, um, but yeah, no, it was interesting. Yeah, I mean, basically, for a super general summary of this, you basically have, as we mentioned, uh, our path with our aging actor, uh, young director Sammy Michaels is working with him, being played by Bogdanovich, who would not go on to be in other movies. This is it's just kind of neat to see him in there in his his first movie here, um, and he's kind of chasing him around, and he's basically <clears throat> playing himself. Uh, Bogdanovich was Quentin Tarantino before Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. He was obsessed with film history and all the old greats and just kind of chasing them around for interviews and learning from them. Um, and so there's a charm to that uh, character that he's playing there because a lot of that is him. On the flip side, you're watching uh, young Bobby kind of just slowly unravel. He's stocking up. And it's it's not as dramatic and as the real events with the morning of and writing a ton of bad checks and stuff, but he's gearing up. Yeah. And so the first part is actually what scared me more as a kid, where he goes up on top of the I don't know what you call those those gas silos or oil silos. Yeah. Right next to the highway, which by the way they didn't have a permit for. Um, he literally is up there without permission, um, and they have people that are driving the cars. <laughs> Bill Friedkin style. Yeah. Uh, people out there on the highway are participating, and so they're reacting just you know real quick with and then cut. That's why it's quick cuts mm-hmm. with all this. But they literally went up there before people from the facility discovered them. Just filmed it quick and got out of there. That's what scared me though as a kid because that was the first time I had thought about random violence and something lurking just some, out of your point of view. Yeah, and something that adults couldn't protect me from. Yeah, that I could just be riding in a car and that. Yeah, and so that had a profound effect on me um, when I was younger. But that's sure. that's his first event. He also, much in the vein of, uh, of Whitman, kills the the wife, the mother, uh, bear, puts him up, carries him to bed, puts the blanket over like he did uh, with the relatives in real. Yeah, life. that one. As I'm watching, I'm like, well, this is okay. This is kind of beat for beat here. Like yeah. this, this is rather because he climbs the top of the gas and I'm like okay there's where they had to switch some shit up so it wouldn't you know ring and be an exact replica but I'm like geez when he kills him that's almost beat for beat yeah and he also he knows something's wrong with him he tries telling his wife he I think he writes a letter in this yeah and, and he left a note yep and and something too that I I just find 
fascinating is how quickly the culture was changing. Because, like, and we didn't reference this in the case, but if you think about the assassination of Kennedy in Texas, mm-hmm. and not even three full years later, the Whitman case, which feels like a different world. Right. I mean, so much was had changed already and was changing rapidly, uh, even as referenced with the making of this movie by the time it actually hit screens. Um, but eventually, our characters converge. We meet at the drive-in. Yeah. Where he, we have uh, from the initial shooting that we just mentioned, young Bobby flees, evades the police, and goes to a drive-in. Sits there, and as it starts to get dark, he heads up and goes up and um, gets behind the screen. And it's a terrifying concept uh, to think of a sniper at a drive-in. Oh, yeah. Um, picking people off sitting in their car who don't, you don't realize it's happening, especially when you got a movie blaring. Right. Um, if it's being done discreetly it's a very scary idea we also have our aging actor byron mr orlock coming to the theater or the drive-in theater for a a, a in-person appearance because they're showing one of his movies yes um it is a stroke of genius how they put this together and and the idea of of this for the finality because you have just all these things blending into together it's almost like a fever dream Thoughts on, on that approach, the ending? I can absolutely see why Boris Karloff took this job. Like, not only does it feel custom-made for him, obviously, but for some of the work he may have done throughout his career where he felt like it was repetitive and all that kind of thing, I think that this was a chance for him to show a little more of his chops. It was also a little bit of a chance to... It's, he's playing himself to a degree... The parallels are there with the character and himself. But even as an aging man, like at the end, he comes off like a strong hero type guy in the end of this. Even at the age that he was when he when he performed in this movie. Yeah, it's... Um, oh, man. He slaps the fuck out of that guy. <laughs> I loved yeah. it. And there's something to be said there, too, where you look at the generations and the one that's willing to come up and put his hands on the other versus the other one who's hiding up there killing people yes with a rifle um and it also it really touches on that the whole thing of of what is part of fueling the psychosis of the whitman character is that like once someone stands up to him and it really see, it comes off as almost like his dad yeah he just cowers away yeah. yeah he literally drops to the corner yeah and covers up his face like a child after he slaps him and uh Karloff says is this really what i was afraid of i mean it's it's such an interesting statement without it being very heavy-handed on what used to scare us and how scary real life is now. Yep. The movies aren't... You can't escape real life with the movies because you're at the movies getting shot at. Yeah. It's, and But none of it is beating you over the head with it. Right. Um, it's just... It's an interesting... It's an interesting approach. And I, I just want to clarify, too, the reason this movie exists is because Karloff owed him two days of work. Corman. And so... He told Bogdanovich, who had been working with him, but never made a movie, he said, if you can put something together, you got Carla for two days, make it happen. And so, Polly Platt and him put together these dueling narratives. The you rest is also, history. You can also pad your runtime a little bit by showing old clips. Which you have the rights to. Yeah. It's, it's, but it never feels hokey, like a lot of stuff does. No, mm-hmm. not like when Ed Wood uses stock footage. Right. All right. It's it's a love letter. He managed to incorporate um, this just wonderful like swan song appreciation for Karloff in it. So yep. it's it is a one of a kind movie. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then that chilling final shot where the drive in is empty and all that's there is our shooter's car. And the thing that resonated with me about that final shot was we're not talking about like an Indiana drive in. We're talking about an enormous yeah uh, city. And to see just how many targets he really had at his disposal and how many people he Thank really God he dropped those bullets, how many yeah. he could have killed unknowingly yeah. with that rifle. So I want to point out too another scene that upset me greatly uh, when I was younger was the kid sitting in the car and they pan over to the parent who's been shot. Oh, yeah. Whew, it's brutal. It's rough. Yeah. It's mid 60s. This shit was upsetting and scary to people. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was an interesting watch. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, did you watch Deadly Tower? No. Yeah, 
There's not a whole lot to say about it. It's beat for beat, and it takes the approach of most of the made-for-TV um, true crime movies, and it, it tries to follow the life of who one of the, whoever the main detective or cop is right. in the story, and it does that with uh, Romero Martinez. You do get to see Ned Beatty waving the white flag, though. Yeah. If only he could have done that in those woods. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was fine. It's If you're really into this and want to learn and see more, that's definitely a viable option. Yeah, and then of course it's interesting to see Russell in that kind of role. Yeah, too. it is, it is, and you really get more of that beat for beat of kind of the idea of uh, how Whitman kept weapons on different sides of the tower mm-hmm. and would go to those to fire. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, we gushed a little bit about the tower, but can't recommend that enough. And you said it's on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. For free. And Can't. Targets was just put out by Criterion a couple months ago with a fancy blue. Not only is interested. it on YouTube, it's on YouTube, I believe, in HD, and there are no ads that cut in. Oh, wow. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Cool. So, yeah, both are both are out there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, wild story. Wild story. Wish uh, wish it wasn't there for us to talk about it. Wish it wasn't true. Yeah. Nope. So, uh, all right. Any last things to say about uh, Targets or... The actual bit? I think Targets yeah. is worth checking out if you're somebody who is into that Car- Karloff. Uh, into Karloff as an actor. Or Bogdanovich yeah. as a yeah. director. Totally should check it out. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, wrapping up another true crime episode for the Midwest Monsters podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Grizzly Abner, and I've been joined by... The deputized Professor Wagstaff. <laughs> Venomous Vinny. Stay scary. <laughs>